Last few weeks, last many weeks, and we've got a few more weeks of it, we have been in a series called Watchmen. The watchman on the wall, to be able to identify the walls that we are supposed to be on, to be able to identify if we were on the wall, what would we be looking for? As I shared with you last week, this is not a political series by no means. (laughs) This is about the walls of our heart and those things that God wants us to put up and protect and protect around our family in those ways. But also it's about tearing down some walls that has kept us from being everything God's called us to be. So it's, it is about walls, but it's not maybe the walls you may be thinking about or you hear on the news for sure. Last week we talked about, and I'm going to read this, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. It says, finally, this is Paul writing. And this is the NIV. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith in which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whatever, whenever I speak, Words may be given so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Last week, I hope we closed last week as dark as it kind of felt, talking about principalities and powers and all that. I hope we closed last week with good news. I hope you walked out of here last week not discouraged but encouraged because whatever the power that evil forces may possess, they are still under the control of the creator and ruler of the universe, Jesus Christ. However, they are still a formidable foe and Jesus took them very, very seriously. In this writing right here, Paul uses the word stand four times. And obviously Christ wants us to take our stand in our authority that's only in him, not on our own flesh, not on our own making. But I love the definition of, 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 of stand means one who does not hesitate, who does not waver, who perseveres, one who vanquishes his adversary and holds the ground against the enemy's schemes. Authority, to stand in the authority. And let me, let me give you just a real quick visual of that. If a police officer is standing in the middle of an intersection and there is a semi-truck coming and he puts his hand up to tell it to stop and the truck stops, he does, that truck does not stop because of the physical 
authority of the physical ability of that police officer. He stops because of the authority that police officer stands in. That's what we're talking about in stand. You walk in authority. The one you walk with has no rival. Period. So, what do we stand against? Well, we stand against the enemy's schemes. And we talked about that last week. But we have to have spiritual eyes and spiritual wisdom and spiritual discernment to know what is a scheme because we know the enemy will do this. He will get it so close to the truth that we will accept it but it's still a lie. See, the enemy doesn't really matter how close to the truth we get as long as we don't walk in the truth because the truth is where the power is. See, I don't have to know everything. As a dad, I don't have to know everything. As a husband, I don't have to know everything. As a friend of hopefully many people, I don't have to know everything. As as, As a person in this community, as a pastor, I don't have to know everything, but I better know what I need to know. Because when I find out what I need to know, then I can stand in that. And as we said last week, a lot of us have got a lot of useless information piling into our minds. And that's part of the scheme, isn't it? Somehow or another, we think by getting a lot of information that somehow or another we're getting smarter. Sometimes that a lot of information is more clutter we have to fight through to get to where the real truth is. Challenge. We cannot be found as God spoke to the watchman in Isaiah 56, and he said about the Israel, Israel, Israelites' watchman, he said, you cannot be blind, ignorant, and mute. So that's what we're fighting against. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, and this is from Eugene's Peter, Eugene Peterson's The Message, and I want to read this before we launch into the rest of it. And he goes on, it's just what we read a while ago, but Eugene Peterson writes it this way as a paraphrase. He said, that about wraps it up. God is strong, and he wants you to be strong. So take everything the master has set out for you, well-made weapons of the best materials, Put them to use so you'll be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is not an afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is for keeps. A life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all of his angels. That's the stage of this divine drama. That's the stage that there is a world we can see and there is a world, if you believe Scripture, and it's referenced so many times, you, can't, you, you almost can't, you really can't believe the rest of Scripture if you're not going to believe that there is a world that is of evil forces that is going on around us. I mean... Jesus cast them out. Paul writes about it multiple times. We can ignore it, or we can try to figure out more about it, because I need to know, I don't need to know everything, but I better know what I need to know. 
So what did Nehemiah do? As we've talked about a few weeks ago, I love this. When he was, they were, Nehemiah and, it is, and the folks were building the wall. And I apologize for my sniffles today. I'm trying to do the best I can with it. So hang in there. Uh, but Nehemiah, as they're building the wall, and they get about halfway through, and they get discouraged because people are trying to stop them from building the wall back up for protection. And that wall meant way more even than just building a wall for protection. It meant something about this, the, 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 the people of, of Israel. But this is what happened as they were trying to discourage them. Nehemiah comes along, Nehemiah it writes in Nehemiah 4.13, said, Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places posting them by families with their swords and their spears and their bows. After I looked everything over, I stood up and said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Sometimes we need to remember, don't be afraid of them. Remember, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half the men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Weapons and tools, weapons and tools, weapons and tools. Again, not a political statement, weapons and tools. It is a spiritual statement, though. I don't have to know everything, but I better know what I need to know. Second Corinthians 10.4 says, we, we use God's mighty weapons not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds, strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We do not fight against flesh and blood. When you, be, when you begin to make a person your enemy, then you are not following what God is saying. It is the scheme behind it. We are, you know what, this is the crazy thing. If you're going to be a watchman, you know you're called to love your enemy. That's Jesus saying, you love your enemy. But we'll talk about what that love means here in just a minute, though. But to put on the full armor of God. And I'm going to spend more time on some of these pieces of armor today just for the sake of time. As most of you know, if you've been around church a long time, this is a whole series on its own. Every piece of armor is. I mean, we could go eight weeks just on putting on the full armor of God. If you, like I said, if you know the word, if you don't, that's cool too. I'm just saying, if you know it, you know there's more to this. But I'm, so I'm going to try to do the best I can with it today. But the first one is this. Put on the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Well, the, just a little backdrop. The belt of the Roman soldier and Paul's day was not just a little simple leather belt like I would have on here, not just to keep your pants up. That wasn't what it was for. It was this big piece of leather that came around and had a metal inside of it, had a flap that fell down. I won't, unless you're a guy, you probably won't understand all that. But anyway, but had that, but that's where you had to get the belt on right because the belt then 
was what held the other weapons. Anybody ever, ever, ever it's, and it's pretty significant. Anybody ever looked, seen a police officer walk into a restaurant or somewhere and you go, how in the world do they walk around with all that on them? How do you even sit in a car with that belt on? It's got so many things, or military, and you see how much stuff they have on just to function at their highest ability. Have you ever looked at them and go, wow. But the belt's where it starts. Because it is the belt of truth. If the belt is not right, the rest of the armor doesn't fit correctly. If the belt, I'm saying it again, if the belt is not right, the rest of the armor does not fit correctly. And Satan's primary weapon, I believe, is the lie. But it's not the lies that we tell, which again is a problem, don't misunderstand that. But it's the lies we believe that are contrary to God's truth. That's where we're in trouble. See, if Satan can deceive you into believing a lie in a certain area, he can control you in that area. Be from guilt, fear, shame, self-esteem, purity, wealth, control. See, we are dangerously vulnerable if we are not tightly secured in God's truth. I used to believe, and many of you know my story, I was 10 years away from church of any type, heavy, heavy drinker for years. I used to believe that I was a better driver when I drank. I was convinced of that. Now, I know there was a certain point I knew I wouldn't be, but if I just got it in that certain window, I was a better driver when I drank than when I didn't. Here's why I thought that. is because I was very conscious of what was going on. I am now turning on my left blinker. I am now looking in my rearview mirror. I'm now moving over to the next lane. If you drive it all, you know that driving is about the subconscious. It's below. You don't even think about putting your signal light on. You don't even think about looking in the mirror because it's just what you do. You don't think about those things. But somehow, some way, I convinced myself that I was a better driver when I drank. And some of you probably have convinced yourself in here you can have more alcohol than you really can. You're convinced of that. You're convinced you can get... 0.08's not much, by the way, just so you know. But this is not about alcohol. This is about believing a lie so I can live into something else. We've got a lot of challenges in our culture. But I think Craig Rochelle is, is spot on. Those of you who are in Uncommon know we, we talked about that the first week. One of his statements is, we are only as strong as we are honest. We are only as strong as we are honest. One of the lies I think we have, and, and it's maybe in your home, could be between you and your spouse or you and your children, could be it's in our culture, we know that, and that is emotionalism equals truth. That emotionalism 
equals truth. That if I can get the conversation, if I go to my go-to, which is I'm going to make this conversation about emotionalism, I don't have to deal with facts. We know it. we have it in our cultural discord right now on both sides, or whatever side, and in the middle, it is, is, we just have conversations that if we can get the emotions up high enough, then facts are irrelevant from that point on. And our go-to is, if it, and you may be married to somebody like this, or you may have it as your children, if nothing else, what you would do is, if I can't get, if that doesn't work, then I'm going to go to strategic, my go-to is strategic, accusatory, or inflammatory language. To back them into a corner, put them on defense. It's not about, it's, it's not about conversation, it's not about reconciliation. Let me say this. Knowledge and truth can inform our emotions and our passion and can compel us to make a difference in an unbelievable way. But unfortunately, emotionalism many times does not inform knowledge. I'm speaking to some of you here today, and I don't even know who it is. This is going on in your home right now. That's how you deal with conversations see when emotions are the first lens we look through it is hard to have conversation for resolve and reconciliation it just is on the flip side you can have a lot of knowledge and facts and truth and never move to anything productive. Welcome to the church in America. Another misnomer, I believe, is that love equals tolerance and equality. And people might say of us as about Christians. We should be the ones fighting because of love. We are people of love. Jesus is a person of love. If, if we are love, we should be fighting for tolerance and equality. But let me say this. I believe that there is a huge difference between tolerance, what it was 10 to 15 years ago, and what it is today, that I can disagree with someone and still love them and still live with them and still be fr- great friends. But I believe today more tolerance is about you accepting it and agreeing that it's right, that's a different place. That's just a different place. And when I look at Scripture, there's three kinds of love that come out in Scripture. Phileo love, which is warm, affectionate, brotherly love, like Philadelphia, brotherly love. Phileo love. There's eros love, which is the physical, sensual Love. Then there's agape love, which is sacrificial love. It's the love that we as Christians are called to. Because agape love is more than a feeling, it is an act of the will. But it comes with great risk and great 
potential misunderstanding and great responsibility. A great example is have a child born into your home. When you have a child born into your home, if, you, if you're fortunate to have that to happen, not everybody here obviously has had that or even wanted that or are not old enough to have that, whatever. But if you have, one of the things you realize real quick is something called unconditional sacrificial love. They've done nothing to earn it at that point, right? Right? They've done nothing. That is the greatest example to me of agape love that we can get a hold of, that everybody in here can understand, is is that kind of love that they've done nothing to earn. As a matter of fact, they're going to be a lot of trouble. There's nothing they can do to earn it. But you have a great sacrifice that you're going to give, and it is a great responsibility. But let me ask you a question today, though. If you said that my greatest love for my child is tolerance and equality, I have, in other words, they need to rise to the same level of authority and everything as the parents in the home. And if they feel like doing it, just let them do it. Doesn't matter what age they are. If you want to be tolerant, just let them do it. I can't imagine anybody in any realm going that that's good parenting. I just can't. I may be wrong, but I can't get there. James Bryan Smith says this. He said, our goal as Christians is not equality or tolerance. Our goal is agape love. And it means you may, you got responsibility. It means you may have to sacrifice. It means you may be misunderstood for the very reason of why you're doing what you're doing and what you're saying. And we, can have, we may have a problem having phileo love for our enemy. But we are required to have agape love. Truth. Like I said, I'm spending more time on some than others. Is that transformation in your Christian walk is optional. Transformation is optional. Put the slide up of Barna. I've shared with you the last three weeks. This was discouraging to me as I read through this. As Barna, 15,000 people they interviewed, Americans, and asking about transformation And only 4% ever really start living into it, of all Americans. 4%. I would challenge you to show me in Scripture that transformation into Christ's likeness is not the goal. Show me where it's not. But somewhere inside the church, we've made the decision that commitment to faith activities is more important. Because we don't want to go to number seven, which is God break me. Everything is on the altar. Everything, God, if you say it, I'm going to live by it. I don't care what you say. If you've said it and I know it, I'm living by it. But you've taken it off the altar, then you've slid back up the scale. And the problem with that is you can slide all the way back up, up to number one. 
The problem is we don't just get to seven and kind of hang out at six and five. Many hang out there, but many go right back up. It's a lie. Our goal is never church activity. Never was. Matter of fact, who was the heart? Who was Jesus the hardest on? Those in church activity. <laughs> We've traded something. We traded it out. Let me ask you today, what do you do with truth? If truth is in God's word, if God said it, would you live it? Because if you can't, then there's a, there's a divided heart. Secondly, would people be afraid to speak truth into your life? Do they walk around on eggshells afraid to say anything directly to you about it? Because of the way you would respond to it. Because I'm going to tell you right now, if truth is not paramount in your life, you are vulnerable to the enemy... It is dangerous where you're living. Or you can believe none of what I'm saying today. But if what I am, if any of this is true, that right there for sure is true. If you've exchanged a lie for the truth, and you're not willing to allow God to speak into that, you are in a vulnerable, vulnerable place. And you can make excuses from now on. Some of you have made excuses. I can just continue to set it out for a long time. I don't have to get involved. And the kingdom advancing. Find it for me. Show me. It's a fun sermon, isn't it? I know you know it is. But this is not an afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from a couple hours. If it's all true, if it is, this is serious business. The next piece is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate is what was seen by all people. It actually even covered up the belt to many, to, in many ways. When they stood, that was the biggest piece, and it was very obvious. It covered the heart. Whether it's in your home or whether it's in your career or whether it's with your recreation or your friends, that is the piece that people ultimately judge you by. But here's the challenge for many of us. We think it says, put on the breastplate of rights instead of righteousness. You know the biggest challenge I have personally in my walk with Christ and fighting this battle is a phrase that I use that I would never say out loud except to people in confession. And that is, there are many times I say to myself, I deserve this. With a smile on my face as I eat that bag of Doritos at 9 o'clock at night. When I go to purchase something, I'm checked. In that moment, I'm checked. There's a stop sign, and I just drive right through it. I've gained 10 pounds since I've been back from sabbatical, and I blame all that on you guys. I've just been, no, 
I have. Three months, I've gained 10 pounds back. And most of that is saying I deserve it. It's food. Half of my, half of my closet, I can't even wear the clothes right now. Fortunately, I'm not saying I deserve looking at porn. Fortunately, I'm not doing that because that has even more ripples. But I'm still driving through a stop sign that God's saying stop is a stop sign. Sure, we have rights in this country to have an abortion. We have rights to have sex with whoever we want to. I mean, it's free. Wherever you want to go, casual sex is what I was trying to look for. You A right to have a no-fault divorce. It's a right to, to dismiss people. It's a right to not help the poor. It's a right to do all that. But I don't believe it lines up with God's righteousness. It doesn't say the breastplate of rights. It does not. You can go to enough places today, including churches, to hear what you want to hear. You just can. You just can. Somebody with a PhD will tell you you're all right. But I don't think it's the first place you need to be asking. You've got to ask, if it says it in here, am I willing to live into it? And if I'm in community where I'm getting honest feedback, am I willing to live into it? That's the question. Breastplate of righteousness. I won't preach the sermon that I've preached before, but just say this. Righteousness is not a line that I come up to and tiptoe up to, and as long as I don't cross it, I'm all right. No, righteousness is a pursuit of something. It is a pursuit of Almighty God. That's what righteousness is. You're not worried about where the line is. That line's so far behind you, you're not even worried about that anymore. Where's the line, Pastor Kurt? Teenagers used to ask me. How far is too far? If you're chasing after God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you don't even have to ask that question. It clarifies itself. And you'll know. You'll just know. You'll just know. Please don't confuse the two. Your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Have you got good news for people? Do you really feel in the depths of your soul that you have good news for people? I sure hope you do, because you do. If you're, if you're in filled with the Holy Spirit and you're trying to do the best you can to walk this out, you have great news for people because, but Jesus says, blessed are what? The peacemakers. Not peacekeepers, not even peace lovers, but peacemakers. Peacemakers are people who are working towards wholeness, working towards restoration. Peacemaker does not mean without conflict. We're so afraid of conflict sometimes, we can't get to peace. I know parents many times go, I just don't want there to be any conflict in the house. I just want there to be peace. No, no, there's still conflict underneath. The conflict's still happening. You've just swept it under the rug. No, God says you become a peacemaker. That means about wholeness. That means about restoration. Let me say this about it too, and I know I'm talk as fast as I can. If you've not made peace with God, you're going to have a hard time ever. And walking in peace with God, you're going to have a hard time ever being a peacemaker. Because it's going to be about you most of the time. Everything's going to be filtered through you, how it affects you. 
shield of faith. I love this one. There's two different ways of shields, one on the, on the, on the armor. One is on the arm as the, as the arrows come. But then there's those, there's those shields that are like doors. You've seen those. The Romans had those where you'd almost get behind a door. Because sometimes those arrows weren't arrows. They were javelins. <laughs> they were spears. Anybody see any temptations come your way this week with the flaming arrows being shot at you this week? Did you get hit by, or at least close to getting hit by a javelin, not just a small arrow? See, many of us want a shield of faith that makes us comfortable. And because the shield of faith does not do that, we're often stunned and confused. Because we didn't realize we were in a battle all along. Martin Luther says this, that's what I was going to say I love about this. Martin Luther says this, Temptation is not as much about the penalty of manhood as it is the glory of manhood. It is about which a man is made an athlete of God. God wants you strong in him. And temptations and trials, well, they help get you there. Uh, Martin Luther, I don't think I have this quote here, but I love what he goes on to say. He says, my temptation, my temptations have been my masters in divinity. Temptation and adversity are the two best books in my library. Temptation and adversity are my two best books in my library. Temptation and adversity then become this pathway to following after Christ. Conquering through his power to make our character stronger. It takes on a hold. When temptation, you're no longer going, man, I'm getting shot at all day long. No, it's making me an athlete for God. Whole different way to get there, baby. Whole different way of thinking. Manna says that small things are crushing you. Your vision's not big enough. If small things are crushing you, day in, day out, your vision's not big enough. Take the helmet of salvation. When the soldier was suited up for battle, the helmet was the last piece of armor he put on. It was that final act of readiness or preparation for combat. Obviously, it's vital, the helmet is. Why? You can get shot in the arm and still be able to fight. You get shot in the head, you take a blow to the head, that's the command center for the rest of it. You're useless. Now you're useless. It is your greatest battleground, folks, is your mind. It needs to be transformed, Paul says in Romans 12, 2. No longer conforming to the pattern or the lies of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the thinking. Take captive every thought. I love that. Captive is, a, again, a military thought. Take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. Then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's your only offensive weapon. The only one. Everything else is defense. I don't know about you. I played basketball and baseball for a long time, but basketball is my favorite sport. Played it for years and years and years. I'll be honest with you. I like playing offense better than defense, just so you know. If you watch me play, you'd realize that way too early in watching me play because <laughs> I didn't play very good defense. 
But man, I want to go on the offensive. Oh, it's a defensive tool too. But man, it's offensive. Jesus, when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, it is written. 30 years ago, 30 years ago, one passage of Scripture sitting in my home in Hooks, Texas, as I was reading it, one passage of Scripture delivered me from alcohol. Hadn't touched it since. 30 years. One passage of Scripture. Nobody's preaching to me. It's just me and the Holy Spirit reading something. Boom. Delivered me right there. And have not been tempted since. I'd pray over my children. There's a picture I had in my office for years. It's so faded now, I can't even hardly put it up. But many of you know this picture. Almost every night that I was home, my kids would be asleep, and they wouldn't know it most of the time. I'd be laying hands on them. The, the, the caption under this says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. We, mean, we need more righteous people so our prayers can be more powerful and effective, by the way. But one of the things I would say around them is the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Many times, that's, that was one of the passages of Scripture that I would hang on to. My kids would get scared. The angel of the Lord encamps around. He's there. You can't see him, but he encamps around those who fear him. They overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the power of their testimony. We cannot be found watchmen who are mute. Paul goes on to say, that I will do this fearlessly. Fearlessly. See, the enemy yields no ground to emotion or sincerity, folks. He backs off only when confronted with the authority we possess in Jesus Christ. Not flinching, not yielding, not fleeing. See, when you're living in the power and favor of Almighty God who has no rivals, you won't pray for relief. You'll pray for boldness and opportunity. That's what you'll pray for. Some of you have been praying way too long for relief. And God's going, no, I need you to pray for boldness to walk through this. I love Daryl Scott. It's not even in my notes, but Daryl Scott many years ago. Rachel Scott, who got killed at Columbine. Many of you know Rachel Scott. Had a chance to talk with Daryl Scott, her dad, after she had gotten murdered there at Columbine. And he said this older man told him when he was trying to walk his way through it. He said, Daryl, you need to be a see-through or not a look at her. Sometimes we look at the problem way too long instead of seeing through where God's trying to take us. We need to become see-throughers. Not just look at us. And we can do that through the power of walking in this. You are God's representation here on earth. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
See, the enemy tried to extinguish Jesus, and the word tells us if they had known, I think it's, it's 1 Corinthians 2, 7, said if they had known what was about to happen, they would have never killed Jesus. As Scripture says, he says, if they had known if Jesus dying and because of his resurrection that the power of the Holy Spirit is going to believe and live in his believers, they'd have never done it. That's the mystery of the gospel. You wonder why you have a bullseye on your back. Don't you? Irvin McManus says, the reward of winning a great battle is a greater battle. Because you no longer fight what you fought yesterday because you took care of that yesterday. I'm not saying you have to go pick a fight. But I am going to tell you this. You need to know how to finish a fight. When I was growing up as a kid, I'm going to ask this band to come on up. When I was growing up as a kid, no, wait a second, guys. You can wait. Hold on. Hold on a second. My bad. I had two friends. Most of you know I was bullied. You heard my story. I was bullied in the seventh grade. Uh, I think part of what I did in the seventh grade, I overate all the time. That was my, that was my out. I gained a tremendous amount of weight from my sixth, seventh grade on until I got to the eighth grade. And I still think today that's part of my issue as is I go back to that when I get, it's my go-to, it's food. It just is. But I decided when I was there that I'll tell you what, if, if I ever get big enough and I ever get whatever enough, I'm going to make sure people are not bullied. I had two friends come into my life, one named Billy Williams, the other named Billy, uh, uh, David Barrett. They were both country strong. I mean country strong. And they knew how to fight. And they taught me. Here's the thing about how they fought. Billy especially, eighth grade, taught me how to fight. And he said, don't go pick a fight, but you better know how to finish a fight. Billy had no rules once the fight started. And Billy had no quit once the fight started. Billy was going to finish the fight. And my friend David picked fights. Didn't like hanging with him near as much. But he was awesome. And unfortunately, both of them have passed away. And many of them never got out of the lie of the alcohol and the other deception that was in, they were in. And fortunately, I just feel very fortunate today to stand before you that one word, God's word, changed me. Changed me. Changed the trajectory of my life, like I told you last week. Like I told you last week. You drop that rock in the water. Like my mom and dad had a chance at 32 years of marriage, 32 years, halfway through, they were married 64, only at 32 years, God made me think of Nehemiah at 26 days, took them 52 days to build it, but at 26 days, they were, they were discouraged, they were, but somewhere along the way, they, they regrouped, they regrouped, and said, we got a vision, we got to finish this thing, and my mom and dad did, that ripple, that rock they dropped in the water could have been devastating for generations, but by dropping that rock the way they did, now most of us, are really, 68 of us, there were 18 at that time, 68 of us now, and for the most part, all of us are following Jesus Christ. That rock goes both ways. That ripple. 
We have to realize what's at stake here, folks. Your children's lives. Let what you're going through, your trials and tribulations, to motivate you and change you to become a better champion for God. Not to knock you out of the fight. But you've got to have, I'm telling you, you better have the tools and the weapons or you're just fighting on your own. And you've got to be honest. You've got to get honest. Because I'm going to tell you, this is what I believe. If our brothers and sisters around the world knew how most of us Christians lived, first they would laugh. Secondly, they would cry. What did Nehemiah do when he, do when he, what did he do when he found out what the condition of Jerusalem was? He wept and he fasted and he prayed and repented. First Peter 5, 8, and 9 said, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, your adversary, your opponent, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. And I love this because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. God, help us today as we close this service with song that you would work through all of our hearts as we've worked on this, as I've worked on it, Lord. I mean, you, you exposed to me as I worked on this of my mentality, it's my right. I deserve this. Thank goodness I didn't get what I deserved. I got what I needed in you, Jesus. And when I became broken before you, Lord, it changed the trajectory of my life. I just want to say thank you today. But Lord, I don't want to be found and I don't want our church to be found and we're going to do everything we can to, to, to do this, Lord, to not let our folks hear. Buy into the lie that transformation is optional. It is paramount when we know that, Lord, to be able to fight the battle you've called us to. Thank you for this time, Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.